That's Chad is brought to you by Walters with only 22 home games left this season. Walters is bringing out some new menu items starting this week. A fresh mozzarella capri sandwich with heirloom tomato on a sun-dried tomato ciabatta roll. An ahi tuna poke bowl with cauliflower rice, carrots, radish, and pickled red onions. And the hottest food trend on TikTok, a smoked cream cheese with pulled beef scallions and pickled jalapenos. Make the last bit of your summer a fun one at Walters. Reservations for this weekend series against Atlanta are available now at waltersdc.com slash reservations. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Now the pitch. Adam swings. It's a ground ball. Through into center field. A base hit. Rounding third is Garcia. He's coming home to score. The throw from Nimmo will go into second base. The Nationals have played it three runs now here at the top of the fifth innings. Adams drives in his third run of the year for the Nationals. And it's now Washington 7, New York 4. Thompson could really use the strikeout. Runner at third and one out. He comes set now. The kick in the pitch. Swinging a broken bat liner over the drawn and infield, a base into the shallow center. VR scores from third. Drury does it again with a pinch hit RBI single. His 10th pinch hit of the year, his ninth pinch hit run batted in. And for the first time in this game, the Mets have the lead. It's now New York 8 and Washington 7. And welcome to Nats Chat for Thursday, August 12, 2021, along with Nationals insider Mark Zuckerman of MassInSports.com. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi podcast. Well, you know, sometimes you say to yourself, are the baseball gods trying to communicate something to us? The baseball gods don't seem to want this national series at the Mets to ever truly take place, certainly ever be completed, of the rain-suspended Game 1 that started on Tuesday night, ended on Wednesday. We have Game 2 of the scheduled doubleheader rained out on Wednesday night. And so when we're supposed to have two games done in this series going into Thursday, we have just one game done in this series. It took two days. It took a while. And it was a game in which the Nationals blew multiple three-run leads. An 8-7 loss at the Mets that, again, starts on Tuesday night, ends on Wednesday. Mark, in what has been a mess of a national season, we have a mess of a series at the Mets here this week. This is about as bad as it gets, Al. Just, just emotionally for everyone, you know. I know they're putting on a good face and they're and they're out there playing hard and trying to win games and all that. But inside, you know, they're just they've had it. They've had enough. <laughs> they want to be done with this. They want to head back home. They want to get into some kind of more normal rhythm again. They would love a day off, which they get finally on Monday. So it's going to be a while until that. And it took so much just for them to get through nine innings. And there's still 14 more to go on Thursday when it's going to be blazing hot 
in New York, just like it's going to be here in D.C. They don't know what they're doing pitching wise. The Mets obviously care because they're trying to get back into this thing after an awful week themselves. But I mean, this is bad and it's going to continue. I mean, they have another doubleheader. They have a five game series with the Mets coming up in early September. The Mets have more doubleheaders because they had a bunch of games rained out earlier in the year. This is going to be a slog of uh, six weeks to get through the season to get all these games in. Yeah, the Nats and Mets still technically have not made up all of the games that were missed to begin the season, right, with the COVID-19 situation. I think it's what, two of the three games have been made up, but the third has not been made up, just to give people a sense of how difficult it is to cram all these games into a season. They've got a five-game series over four days in September at Nats Park, and like I said, the Mets have some other makeups to do as well. They had a bunch of them early in the season. It's not great, and we can go into the what you know seven inning double headers and all that, but I mean when they get to the end of the season, these teams will have played far fewer innings than you are supposed to over one sixty two, and it's not going to matter in the Nats case, but in the Mets case, it could impact you know whether they make the playoffs or not. It may help them, it may hurt them. We don't know, but it's not great, and I don't know what the answer to any of this is, but it's a bad situation when you combine the COVID outbreaks and the delays because of that, and now with bad summertime weather on the East Coast. So just a scheduling question, could the doubleheader for Wednesday have been started earlier or because the originally scheduled game was a night game, you couldn't start things earlier? Because obviously what ended up happening is you played game one and then you walked right into the rain on Wednesday night in New York. They could have scheduled the first game for like one o'clock and made it a split doubleheader. They chose not to do that. It was single admission. So they just bumped it up three hours from the original starting time. And I'll be honest, I, you know, I always look at the forecast each day before the game that night. And while it said there was like a slight chance, it really didn't look anything like it did Tuesday. So I'm not sure they knew that that was going to happen. And then game one ended, they put out a lineup for game two. Everybody was assuming, okay, we're starting at eight o'clock. And all of a sudden the Mets announced, no, the start is going to be delayed, even though it wasn't raining yet, but they saw the big storm coming through and it looked like it was going to last well into the night. So, I mean, this time of year, you just never know. I've seen a handful of cases over the year where they pushed a start time up to try to avoid rain. Usually it was because of like literally a hurricane or a tropical storm or something that dramatic. They usually aren't going to do it in a case like this, even if in hindsight you'd say, boy, it would have been nice if they could have played 14 innings from, you know, one o'clock to six o'clock. But uh, I don't think that was ever really a serious consideration. It's tough. And uh, it has been a Murphy's Law this week with the weather. And it's not just the Nats-Mets series. Other series are getting impacted uh, by the weather as well. It is that time of year in the United States, as uh, most people listening probably know. Well, it was a bad day on Wednesday for the Nationals bullpen. It was a bad day on Wednesday for Joe Ross, who I guess was technically part of the Nats bullpen. But it was a good day and that Juan Soto was back. And we do want to acknowledge this. Uh, Juan, off not starting any of the three games at the Atlanta Braves over the weekend, was out there as the Nationals starting right fielder at number three batter, and he looked great no matter which day of the game you're talking about, Tuesday night or Wednesday. Juan ends up reaching base four times. He goes three for four with a homer, two singles, and a walk in the Tuesday night portion of the game. Soto, a three-run opposite field homer to left center field in the top of the first inning off the Mets starter, Carlos Garrasco. We see Juan draw a two-out five-pitch walk in the top of the second, two-out single in the top of the fourth, and then a leadoff single in the top of the sixth, despite having been down to the count at one point, one, two. Uh, I guess we're good now when it comes to Juan Soto in the knee. The bat certainly looked quite healthy Tuesday night and then again on Wednesday. Yeah, the bat was fine. I loved the home run, took a change up the other way on a line drive to left center field. That's classic Juan Soto right there. The hits were hard hits. These aren't 
little bleeders, anything like that. You know, he's still taking his walk. So it's not like he's expanding the zone, even though, you know, more and more, I'm, I'm wondering how many pitches he's going to even get a chance to swing at during the course of the game, given who else is in the lineup right now and teams not wanting to let him beat them. So good for him for finding a way to make the most of what he got. And, you know, in the field, there was a little bit that you said, eh, maybe he didn't go 100% all after every ball, which is understandable. There was also that weird play where he retrieved the ball in right field and he threw into second base, which was actually Carter Keboom covering instead of the cutoff man, which was Luis Garcia. And that ultimately led a run score that maybe there would have been play at the plate. And I was a little surprised by that. Soto tore the line, will cut it off. Rounding third, McNeil. He's coming to the plate. Relay went to Keboom. Throw to the plate late. Throw to second now. And they have Conforto in a rundown. Keboom running him towards Bell. But I think we're probably seeing him taking it a little bit easy and not pushing it too much yet. I'm sure the Nats are okay with that, all things considered. But, you know, at the plate, everything's great. Nothing to worry about there. And hopefully in the field and on the bases, we don't really see anything else fairly soon. I did want to note thing with Soto the batter. So StatCast, of course, tracks like everything. Going into games on Wednesday, Juan Soto had the lowest chase rate in the majors, but also the highest percentage of swings in the majors that had produced hard contact. It's pretty remarkable. It's been such an odd year for Soto, as we've noted. He's been streaky. He's had stretches in which he's hit a bunch of homers. He's had stretches in which he's done like nothing but hit ground balls. He's hitting all those double plays. There have been times when you're like, you know, what's going on with Soto? Because he'll maybe have a few hits, but they'll all be singles. And then there are other times when you're like, this guy's on fire. He's the best hitter on the planet. But here we are now, deep into the season, and his statistical profile is such that he's got going for him two things that are spectacular. Lowest chase rate in baseball. Chase rate, for those who don't know, I know most of you probably do, percentage of non-strikes that you chase. And then the highest percentage of swings that generate hard contact. It's going to be such a complicated description of Soto's season at the end of the season. Whatever ends up happening, there's a lot to his year this year. But there are some very good things. And I know it's kind of easy to lose sight of those things. But like, that's tremendous that you could say that about a guy this deep into a season. Best chase rate in baseball, best percentage of swings producing hard contact in baseball. Well, and let's point out the bottom line also. And I think we do tend to forget this because we think about all the times that he hasn't looked right or hasn't looked like Juan Soto. His slash line right now, 303, 431, 510, 300, 400, 500. That is incredible. And it's something that only a handful of guys do. Now, by Juan Soto's lofty standards, would say that the slugging percentage is still kind of down at 510 compared to what we've been used to from him. But he is absolutely getting on base at a great rate. When he is making contact, he's still getting hits, hitting over 300. Yeah, he could be even better. But this shows you just how amazing he is, that even when he hasn't been 100% all year long for you know pretty good stretches where he has not been his usual self, he's still got one of the best offensive bottom lines of almost anybody in the league. That's how elite he is. And really, like you said, it's always been hard contact and the eye has been there. He has not been chasing at all. So it's really just been a matter of when he goes bad, it's because he's hitting the ball hard, but on the ground. And once he gets it up in the air a little bit, that's it. He's back to his usual self again. So I think when it's all said and done, there's not going to be a whole lot of, for us to complain about this season for Juan Soto. Yeah, maybe the total numbers are going to be a little bit down from what we thought he might do, but they're still going to be incredibly good and better than almost anybody in the league. Yeah, if you go by OPS Plus, this is the best full season of Juan's career. If we put 2020 off to the side, and he was tremendous in 2020, but Soto's been more productive plate appearance per plate appearance this season as compared to what he was in 2018 
and in 2019. Like I said, it doesn't always feel that way, but that is the case with Juan Soto so far this year. That chat is sponsored by Silver Branch Brewing Company, located in downtown Silver Spring, only a one-minute walk from the Silver Spring Metro Station. Silver Branch is a perfect jumping-off point to Metro down to the game. Park at the Cameron Street parking lot and meet up with friends for a beer and a bite to eat before Metroing down. You can also get Silver Branch beer at Nationals Park. Beyond the Gnome World, one of Silver Branch's four flagship beers is available at District Drafts at Section 223. Brewed to be light and refreshing, Beyond the Gnome World won a gold medal for the Saison beer style at the Great American Beer Festival last year. Beyond the Gnome World is deliciously dry and thirst-quenching and the perfect beer for hot summertime ball games. You may not be familiar with Saison, but take our word for it, baseball season is the perfect season for Saison, and buying from District Drafts to support your local breweries is a gnome run. Go to Section 223 and try Beyond the Gnome World the next time that you're at Nats Park, and make sure you stop by Silver Branch, located in Metro Plaza, just steps from the Silver Spring Metro. Silver Branch Brewing Company, when you come in, let them know that the Nats Chat Podcast sent you. Tickets for the remainder of the 2021 Fredericksburg National Season are on sale now. They have promotions for every night of the week, like $2 Tuesdays, Thirsty Thursdays, Firework Fridays, and Giveaway Sundays. If you can't make it to the game in person, you can listen to a free online radio broadcast on the Fred Nats Baseball Network or watch a live video stream with a subscription to MILB.TV. Stop by the box office or visit FredNats.com for ticket information and see the future stars of the Washington Nationals today. Barley sends a high, deep drive, left center towards the gap. Jimenez at the wall, he leaps, and it's off the warning track. De La Rosa rounding third, he'll score, and Barley into second with a game-tying RBI double. 2-2 in the bottom of the eighth. Yordi Barley comes through for his new club. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Here's the one-two. Swing a line drive right field. Garcia can't get it. It's over him for a base hit to right center. Nimmo will head home as Soto will play it into second. And it's an RBI single to right center for Jeff McNeil. Mets get a run back. It's now the Nationals 4 and New York 2 as McNeil picks up RBI number 26. So very good to see Juan Soto back. Not so good to see the Nationals in the field on Wednesday and not so good to see the Nationals on the mound 
on Wednesday. I guess we could start with Joe Ross here. So Paolo Espino technically started the game. He didn't look so great. He gave up a run in his lone inning of work on Tuesday night. Uh, back-to-back two-out doubles. Give it up to Pete Alonso and Dominic Smith. And then I do have to give Paolo credit for this, Mark. He actually bats in his spot in the top of the second in the Wednesday portion of the game. First batter out there, puts down a sacrifice bunt in the Nats one-run second inning. Is that not Paolo Espino? Whatever you ask him to do, he ends up coming through and doing just fine. And he did that on Wednesday. I did want to at least acknowledge that in our discussion here. Absolutely. And, you know, when I put that out there, because Davey Martinez revealed it in his pregame, that even though Joe Ross would be taking the mound for the bottom of the second, he was still going to have Paolo bat for himself in what we all knew was an obvious sack bunt situation. And I actually got several people on Twitter really upset at that and saying, number one, why wouldn't you let Joe Ross hit? He's a better hitter. Or number two, why wouldn't you use a pinch hitter in that situation? And I'm like, hang on a second here. First of all, like, can we just let Joe Ross prepare to essentially start the game? He was preparing as though he was a starter. Having him bat would be like essentially making him your leadoff hitter on a game that he's starting. Like, why would you do that? No reason to mess around with that. And secondly, in a nine inning game, are you going to burn up one of your bench bats in the second inning when you're already up three one just on the off chance that they might get a hit and create a bigger inning? No. To me, that made absolute perfect sense. Paolo got the bunt down. He's three for three in his career now and sacrificed bunts. So let's give him some credit for that. And it ultimately let the run score. So why anybody would complain about that is beyond me. I think that was exactly the right call. And he did exactly what they needed him to do. And you talk about doing anything that they need. I know we're going to get to the doubleheader Wednesday, but I'll just throw this out there. It's possible he pitches at some point on Thursday. I don't know if he starts a game, but it's definitely possible that he pitches at some point on Thursday. Well, I saw you note on Twitter, it was possibly would have pitched in game two on Wednesday night <laughs> that you weren't dismissing that. Like that was a possibility. So that's Paolo, the secret weapon. Get your T-shirt, natschatpodcast.square.site. So Paolo delivers with the sacrifice bun. I mean, there was a guy on base too, Riley Adams. So that's why it also made sense to have Paolo bat there and put down the sack bun. So Joe Ross ends up, I guess, starting the Wednesday portion. It's technically a relief appearance. Now, those of you who know Joe Ross know that Joe Ross, the starter over his career, has been much different than Joe Ross, the reliever over his career. I don't know psychologically did he approach this as a start or as a relief appearance. Apparently, the latter may have been the case, though, because Joe Ross struggled in this uh, Wednesday portion of this 8-7 Nationals loss at the Mets. He begins his time of the game in the bottom of the second, ultimately allows four runs in five innings, gives up six hits, two doubles, and four singles. Only issued one walk, but he only had two strikeouts. Uh, gave up three runs in the bottom of the third on two doubles, two singles, and an RBI ground out. And the two doubles, to me, were especially disappointing. Leadoff opposite field double by Brandon Nimmo to left field, despite him having been down to the count at 1.12. And then a two-out RBI double by J.D. Davis to left field, despite him having been down to the count at 1.02. So you had each guy in a put-away spot. Ross unable to put the guy away. And then a run is given up by Ross, bottom of the fifth, leadoff five-pitch walk of Jeff McNeil. And then a a two-out full count RBI single by Michael Conforto, who did then get tagged out in a rundown between first and second base. We've talked about Joe Ross, how Jekyll and Hyde is. You know, I've got my saying for him, spin the wheel, make the deal. This was Joe Ross's fourth outing since coming off the 10-day injured list, which he was on with right elbow inflammation. It works out essentially this way. He's been good, then bad, then pretty good, now bad again. Like, The way Ross has been since coming off the 10-day IL is exactly the way that his season is on. Sometimes he's good, sometimes he's not so good, and I didn't think he was very good in this game that was concluded on Wednesday. No, I agree, and the problem is, like we've been saying, there's never a middle ground. There's never a, and he doesn't really have his best stuff, but you know, find a way to get through six innings and only give up three runs or something like that. It just doesn't happen. 
this is a start for him, okay? I know officially it's a relief appearance, but he was treating it like a start. He knew when this game was starting or resuming. He knew when he'd be pitching. This was his normal day to pitch. So he had full rest and prep and everything like that. This is a start for him. And he goes five innings and gives up four runs on 82 pitches. That's not going to cut it. He knows it. They know that. That That's just, especially at this stage, that's just not going to cut it, especially when you consider that they staked him out to a 3-1 lead, 4-1 actually, before he took them out. Then he gave it right back. And then they score three more runs in the top of the fifth. So it's now 7-4 to four, and he comes right back. And what's he do? He walks the leadoff hitter in the fifth. How many times have we talked about this stuff? It kills you. And then ends up the two-out RBI single to Conforto. And that was the weird play by Soto where maybe if he hits the cutoff man, there might have play at the plate. But regardless, Joe Ross has got to be better than that. And he's just got to find a way on those nights when he doesn't really have everything feeling exactly right. He's got to find a way to still be effective and not let it all fall apart like this. The other thing that stood out to me about this one, he was so deliberate on the mound, taking a lot of time between pitches. This game took forever for a variety of reasons, but one of them was he just did not have any rhythm on the mound. And if you think back to his best starts this year, that game against the Dodgers on July 4th and a few others, he's worked quick. He's gotten ahead in the count. He's worked fast. He's thrown strikes, all that good stuff. And he did not have any of that in this game. Yeah, the other thing too is when he's on, you see him generate strikeouts. And that seems to come and go too. Like some games you're like, wow, he had a good number of strikeouts. That's nice to see. And then you have a game like this one on Wednesday where he barely strikes anybody out. And so you're like, well, is he a better strikeout pitcher or isn't he? And that's Joe Ross this year. Like it's feast or famine. It's amazing how that is, but it is. And uh, for Ross now, you're looking at 20 games on the season, an ERA of 417. Then there was an Nats bullpen in this game that was concluded on Wednesday, and the bullpen wasn't much better. Nationals end up using two relievers beyond Joe Ross in this game, Gabe Klobisitz and Mason Thompson, and neither guy gets the job done. Klobisitz comes into the game, gives up a run in the bottom of the seventh inning. First pitch leadoff single by Brandon Nimmo, one out RBI double by Pete Alonso on a 1-2 pitch to cut the Nats lead to 7-6. And then came Mason Thompson. And look, we're all excited for these new guys. And there's a lot to like and be intrigued by when it comes to Mason Thompson. But he just did not have it in this relief appearance. He gives up two runs, one earned in the bottom of the eighth, although the unearned run was on him. So Thompson gives up a leadoff double by J.D. Davis. Boy, the Mets had a lot of doubles in this game. Thompson then committed one of the worst throwing errors you'll ever see. This was brutal. I mentioned the Nats having three errors. Two of them Ended up not being really that costly. They weren't pretty, but they weren't that costly. This one was super costly. Thompson, a horrendous throwing error on a sacrifice bunt by Jonathan Villar, scoring Davis. He squares, he bunts and bunts it back toward the pitcher. The only play will be to first, and he throws it away down the right field line. Davis comes in to score, and Villar goes to second. And the game is tied. The Nationals 7 and the Mets 7. Thompson later gives up a one-out full-count RBI single to Brandon Drury. That was kind of a, uh, a Babbitt hit because the Nats had the infield drawn in. The ball barely got over a leaping Luis Garcia, but still, I mean, that is a, an RBI single. And then for good measure, Thompson gives up uh, a two-out single to Jeff McNeil. But man, uh, you know, the Nats, like I said, they blew the two three-run leads in this game. 4-1 in the third, 7-4 in the fifth. And certainly with that second three-run lead, the bullpen was a huge part of that. Yeah, so look, this is what's going to happen. They're going to be putting guys like this into these situations. They need to find out if they can handle it. In a perfect world, you wouldn't have to put such inexperienced relievers on the mound for the seventh and eighth innings in a setup role. 
but this is who they have now. It's not even like they have a whole lot of other alternatives with more experience. In addition to them just actually wanting to get a look at some young guys, this is the best option they have at the moment. This used to be Kyle Finnegan would have pitched the seventh, and then Daniel Hudson and Brad Hand, the eighth and the ninth. Well, Finnegan has to pitch the ninth now, so we're not going to see him unless the guys in front of him can hold it down. So not good. You just hope that they get something from the experience, from pitching in high leverage spots on the road against a team that desperately needs to win the game to stay in a pennant race. It didn't work out in this case for either guy. You just hope they can take something from it so that the next time they're in this spot, they figured something out and can help get through it because, you know, the fear is if they're just not cut out for this, it's going to start to show and they're going to be exposed here eventually. And who knows what that means long term. The Nats need somebody from this group, multiple guys from this group to show that they are going to be legitimate big league relievers and legitimate late inning relievers. And so they're going to keep putting them out there and we're going to find out who's got it and who doesn't. And you just have to understand that there are probably going to be more games like this along the way. Each guy certainly looks the part. Each guy is listed as being 6'7". Have the Nats ever had two guys 6'7 or taller on their staff, certainly in their bullpen at the same time? Klobositz and Thompson. This is like a Twin Towers scenario that the Nats have right now with those two guys in the pen. John Rauch was 6'11 uh, or 6'10, and I don't think they had anyone else close to him. Remember, Jeffrey Rodriguez is in the bullpen as well, and he's 6'6". That's about as tall of a bullpen as they've ever had. Now, we get excited by that, but this is always a thing with tall pitchers. They do worry about their mechanics and that it's harder to repeat your delivery when you're that long, when your legs legs are that long, your arms that long. Remember, I know you know Daniel Cabrera well, remember him well, uh, his time with the Orioles and briefly with the Nationals during really probably the low point for the Nationals was when Daniel Cabrera was part of the rotation and didn't last long before Mike Rizzo decided to have enough of him. Well, the thing with Daniel was always he had great stuff, but because he was so big, and all arms and legs, he could never repeat his delivery. And that's why his command was always so bad. Now, I'm not saying that's the case with these two. Klobositz is a good command guy. So he's figured it out. Thompson, I think that hasn't really been a problem for him, command. It's been that, you know, that he was hit. But that is a thing with tall pitchers that you have to be careful. Don't get too excited about guys who are 6'6", six, 6'7", six, six, because it does make things a little more difficult for them mechanically. Yeah. I mean, height looks great, obviously, but it guarantees you nothing. In all sports, Mark McGuire's brother, Dan McGuire, was a 6'8 quarterback in the NFL and like <laughs> he did nothing in his career. So it's wonderful if you're on a poster, but it doesn't guarantee anything in terms of performance. I mentioned the Nationals, uh, the other two errors. So each of the other two errors comes from two young guys who we're clearly monitoring here, Carter Keeboom and Luis Garcia. So Keeboom, I'll give him credit, opposite field bloop single on a ball uh, that barely landed on the outfield grass in the Nationals' three-run fifth inning. But I thought that was actually a pretty good piece of hitting. You know, he's able to do something with a pitch that wasn't easy to do something with. He got jammed on the pitch. And then I thought Keeboom did a great job scoring all the way from first base on the Luis Garcia two-run double. So that was good. But another throwing error for Carter Keeboom. This one beginning the bottom of the sixth inning, he commits a throwing error on a J.D. Davis grounder. Keeboom, again, having trouble transferring the ball from his glove to his hand. In the past, it's been more like he has a hard time getting the ball out of the glove. This time, it was just like a sloppy exchange from ball to hand. Chopped on the ground a third, a two-hopper, glove by Keeboom, and then juggled. He regathers, throws low, and Bell cannot pick it. And Davis is safe at first. A routine two-hopper, Keeboom juggled the ball, transferring it from glove to throwing hand, and then he one-hopped Bell with a throw, and Josh could not pick it. And then he makes the errant throw, and then Josh Bell, I thought, actually could have caught the ball, but he didn't. It was not an easy pick to make, but I thought that was a pickable pick uh, that Josh Bell did not make 
And then I mentioned Luis Garcia. Again, good job by him as a batter. Uh, it was a good-looking two-run double to the right center field gap in that three-run fit. But he himself had an error, a two-outfielding error, on a James McCann grounder in the bottom of the second inning. Runner goes. The pitch swung on, lined up the middle, one hop, and Garcia boots it. All hands will be safe. He was right at the second base bag to field it. And if he does, he probably has an out right at the bag. Still, even if he didn't get an out there, he had time to throw to first, but he couldn't handle the in-between hop. You know, these are the growing pains that we're going to have to deal with here, but these did stand out, especially when you combined them with that Mason Thompson error later in the game. The key boom one, I thought, was a little more glaring, and, and it's exactly what you had been pointing out for a while now, that it, it seems like his issue isn't even really just the throw, it's the getting the ball from his glove to his throwing hand, and it leaves him in a bad position sometimes to make the throw. That's definitely what happened in this case. I don't know why that is. I know some people on Twitter were suggesting that when you spend your whole life growing up as a middle infielder, you use a really small glove with a small pocket because the idea is to get it out as quickly as possible. Maybe he uses a bigger glove at third base. I honestly don't know the answer to that. I've known third basemen who use small gloves, so I'm not sure that that's necessarily a thing, but perhaps there's something to it. That one bothered me. The Garcia play was just like a weird play. He's going to cover the base because of the stolen base attempt. The ball ends up hitting right at him, kind of a short hop on him. Yeah, you'd like him to make the play, but it wasn't a a 100% routine play. I I get why it's called an error, but it wasn't a, you know, just straight up routine play. So I'll cut him a little slack on that one. The Kibum one, because there have been a lot of these now, it's a little bit more concerning. I do like what he's doing at the plate. We're seeing things from him that we have not seen really in his time in the big leagues. That's good. And Garcia, definitely some encouraging things at the plate, especially against lefties. He's now six for 16 against lefties in the big leagues this year. This is after hitting well over 300 with a thousand OPS against lefties at AAA this year. That was a big point of emphasis for the team and for him coming into the season, something he's got to do better. He has done better at it. And I love that they gave him the green light on three and O and he got a fastball right over the plate and he belted it to the gap in right center. That was a good piece of hitting and a good awareness of the situation. He didn't swing in a 3-0 pitch out of the zone. He swung in a 3-0 pitch that was right in his hot zone and made the most of it. Another thing that stood out, Victor Robles finishes a game with two hits. He had a leadoff single and then adds three run first in the Tuesday night portion of the game. And then he has a one-out RBI double to left field on an 0-2 pitch in the top of the second in the Wednesday portion of the game. Although, if you watch the game, this was kind of a gift here because that was a play that Dominic Smith, the Mets left fielder, who's not known for his fielding, really should have made. He was like drifting back toward the wall. I don't know if the shadows confused him or what, but that was uh, semi-generous scoring, I thought. Robles getting credit for a double. But how about this now, okay? And this tells you, this says a lot about a lot. Victor Robles is number one on the Nationals in terms of Nats currently still with the team in doubles this season. Victor Robles has 18 doubles this season. The only two guys who've played for the Nats who have more doubles on the year, Josh Harrison at 23 and Starling Castro at 20. I guess Castro technically is still on the Nats, but we know that he's not coming back. But Robles, Mark, seems to lead the world in doubles that like aren't that impressive. It's like he's had a lot of softly hit doubles. He has this double on Wednesday that really wasn't a true double. Dominic Smith should have made the play. But I think I feel like that would surprise a lot of people. But Victor Robles is number one among currently active nationals with 18 doubles on the year. That shocked me. I had no idea. I never would have guessed that at all. It says something about, I guess, Soto and Bell not really... Like when they hit it, they hit it over the fence, but they're not hitting a lot of balls on a line to the gap or down the lines, I guess. Or if they do, they're only getting to first base and not really pushing it after that. That's uh, that is surprising. I would not have expected that at all. 
you know, now Victor, of course, isn't hitting the ball over the fence at all. So when he is making decent contact, he's ending up with doubles. Although, like you said, there have been some flukish ones as well. I don't know what to make of that one except to say you have to be encouraged anytime he reaches base <laughs> at this point, especially when he's leading off. Got on base twice in the game, set the table in the first thing. That was, we got to go way back to, if we can remember, to 7 11 p.m. on Tuesday night when the game started. His first at bat was a great at bat, fouled off four straight pitches and then lined a single to left to get the rally started. That's what they need to see more of from him. So that was good. The rest of the game, maybe not as much, but slowly but surely, we're going to get a sense of what he can do. And, and he's not going anywhere. They're going to keep putting him out there, leading off as much as possible and find out once and for all what they have. Absolutely. Keep putting them out there. I got one more item from these last two days here with the Nats. So the Nats on Wednesday selected a contract of lefty Sean Nolan from AAA Rochester, an option Sam Clay to Rochester. And I got a kick out of this. I want to bounce this off you. So this season is Sean Nolan's age 31 season. He has not pitched in a major league game since October 2015. Five and two-thirds for Sean Nolan, and he is done for the night. Pomerantz coming in to face Odor. There are going to be many things to say about this Nats season at the end of it, but one of them should be the book that is written on the Vagabonds, who the Nationals ended up acquiring this year in one of the ultimate indictments of the farm system. All these guys like Sean Nolan and Alcides Escobar and Rene Rivera, like guys who either hadn't played in the majors in forever or like in Rivera's case, you know, that's where his 10th team. And here's another thing, too. Sean Nolan is yet another 30-something who the Nats have called up from AAA Rochester this year. And I know that teams have guys in their 30s at the AAA level at times. I'd love to know, though, where this ranks in comparison to the rest of baseball. Just like quickly jotting down names, okay? Sean Nolan, Yadiel Hernandez, Gerardo Parra, Adrian Sanchez, Ryan Harper, Javi Guerra, Justin Miller, and the since-departed Kyle Lobstein. He hasn't passed. He just was traded. All those guys, people in their 30s, who the Nats called up from AAA Rochester this year. Is that not abnormal? Like, am am I missing something here? Or is that incredibly abnormal that every time it feels like the Nats dip down to the minors, they bring up someone in his 30s from the AAA level? Yes. Two points here. Number one, specifically to Sean Nolan. I think the reason why he got the call in this case was they knew or they were expecting to be playing a doubleheader. They knew they didn't really have a starter for game two. He was a starter there at Rochester, pitched six days ago and threw six scoreless innings. So he's on schedule and he pitched effectively the last few times. So the thought was, I don't know that he wasn't going to start game two. That was actually going to be Andres Machado in a bullpen game. But if they found themselves in a situation where they needed multiple innings from someone, he was available and able to do that for them. And so I think that's why he was called up in this specific case. Now, to the larger point, which is an important point, and I go back to our conversation with Jim Callis from yesterday, and we talked about the organizational depth and lack of it and how their system was just not producing competent major league players that you could call up when regulars got hurt. And I think that's a major reason for why this season has played out the way that it has. That absolutely is reflective of the system. And go back to opening day. Look at what the original Rochester roster looked like when they started their season. There was hardly anybody that you looked at and said, oh, that's an interesting young guy who we may see here at some point. It was Garcia and Keyboom and not much else. It was a lot of these journeymen, guys with some big league experience, others who've just been in the organization for a long time. 
and aren't considered top prospects. That is who they had to work with this year instead of developing their own. And I would imagine that if you compare that to what other teams were fielding at AAA, yeah, every AAA team is going to have some of those guys, but I would be willing to bet that the Nationals had more of them than most teams. And that is an indictment. And that is why they're now doing what they're doing so that maybe in 2022, that's not what their AAA roster looks like. Yeah, I mean, the average age of their call-ups this year has got to be around 30. That's, that's incredible. It's not supposed to work that way. Hey, guys, Al Galdi here to tell you about FanDuel. It's great to be in the midst of baseball season. Nothing like watching a game. Great weather, cold drink, and a little action on FanDuel Sportsbook. If you have never bet on baseball before, now is the perfect time to give that a shot. FanDuel is letting new users swing for the fences risk-free as you'll get up to $1,000 back if your first bet doesn't win. And once you have an account, you can get up to $25 back each day if your same game parlay bet falls one leg short. This way you can combine multiple baseball bets for an even bigger win all season long. There's a reason that FanDuel Sportsbook is America's number one sportsbook. The app is simple to use. It's got great odds on all different betting markets, unique fun bet types like same game parlay and always on promotions to let you get more action out of every game day. And when you win, FanDuel will pay you your winnings in as little as 24 hours. Just download the FanDuel Sportsbook app and sign up with promo code CHAT to get in on the action. That's FanDuel Sportsbook. Promo code chat and games on Thursday afternoon include Milwaukee at the Cubs at 220. Brandon Woodruff is starting the game for the Brewers. He is firmly in the National League. Cy Young Hunt. Milwaukee is the way to go. 21 plus and present Colorado, Iowa, Illinois, Indiana, Michigan, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Tennessee, or West Virginia. First on my real money wager, only for risk-free bet. Refund issued as non-withdrawable site. Credit that expires in seven days. Restrictions apply. See terms at sportsbook.fandle.com. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-522-4700 in Colorado. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-9-WITH-IT-INDIANA. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-GAMBLER. New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Virginia. Tennessee, 1-800-889-9789, or in West Virginia, visit www.1800gambler.net. Cavalli into the windup, and here's the 2-2. Swing and a miss at another fastball again. 99 miles an hour, and there's one out. Well, eventually, being called up will be Cade Cavalli. He is, for now, the Nationals' number two pitching prospect, although, as Jim Callis told us, that may change the next time MLB Pipeline comes out with its top 100. Cavalli was pitching on Wednesday night, and he looked good. Seven innings, no runs, six strikeouts, four hits, two walks. And I saw what you tweeted uh, regarding one of the videos that was out there about Cade's outing. I thought it was a really good point. You know, he's getting strikeouts, which is great, but some of them are are coming with pitches out of the zone, and that is kind of like a next step for Cade Cavalli in his growth as a pitcher. I got a few responses from people that were kind of upset at that as well. I I did not make a lot of friends on Twitter for some reason on Wednesday. I don't know why that was. Maybe I was just in a bad mood covering a non-doubleheader from uh, the road while I'm in my basement covering it from afar. Um, Anyways, what struck me, because I didn't just pull this out of a hat. I've been told this by people with the team that they love Kate Cavalli. They love the stuff. They do believe he's going to be a big-time pitcher for them. But they also acknowledge that he's still not a finished product yet. And that, especially at the lower levels of the minor leagues, you can get by with just pure stuff. And what separates the great pitchers at single A and double A from the great pitchers at triple A and the majors is that the hitters are no longer going to chase all of those pitches. They're going to chase some of them, but they're not going to chase all of them. So you do have to be able 
to get those outs and get swings and misses on pitches in the zone or right on the border of the zone, as opposed to those that are out of it. Now that, that clip or that I saw somebody put out there, it was a uh, three strikeouts from the first inning. Two of them are on high fastballs up, you know, kind of at neck level. And then one was on a slider that's uh, down, you know, kind of started at the knees and went down. They're good pitches. They're very good pitches. And it shows you the stuff that he has. But I've got to believe that some big league hitters are going to lay off of those. And he's going to find out once he gets up here that he's got to be a little bit more precise in that. It's a small thing. It's not a big thing. It's certainly stuff that can be honed over time. This is why they're not just going to rush him and why don't just look at what the numbers are at double A and say, oh, he's ready. Call him up. They're in a rebuilding mode. No, hang on. They want to allow him to learn the intricacies of pitching as a professional. And there are a lot of those little things that you just pick up so that by the time he gets here, he's truly a refined pitcher and ready for this. So I'm not knocking him at all. He's elite. He's got great stuff. The organization loves him. We're going to see him fairly soon. I'm guessing early, if not on opening day in 2022. But just remember, he's not a finished product. And as much as we might want to start equating this to Strasburg when he first came up, we got to remember Strasburg was in a class all by himself, a truly rare exception who was that polished at such a young age and was able to make his debut after, what, 11 minor league appearances. Cade Cavalli, very good, but he's not there yet. No, I think that is a totally worthy point, and it's something everyone should be thinking about. Like, okay, Cade Cavalli's good. How can he be great? And what do we have to be thinking about as he makes his way toward the majors? So absolutely, that's something to be uh, following here. Uh, you tell us what you think. Hit us up on Twitter, at Nats underscore Chad. You can also email us to NatsChatPodcast at gmail.com. We do want to solicit for your voice memos, and we're going to try to do something fun here over the remaining weeks of the regular season. Solicit your memories, your experiences from October 2019, your favorite moments, you know, things that were maybe specific to you in terms of, you know, I watched this game with my dad or I experienced this moment with my mom or I did this with my son or I did this with my daughter, that sort of thing. And uh, what we'd like to do is play some of those voice memos on installments of this podcast moving forward here as the season goes on. It's been a rough season if you're a Nationals fan. I think there are good things to be excited about, but, you know, especially because Nats fans never really had the true chance to take the victory lap in 2020. We want to try to offer that as this season goes on. So voice memos are very simple. I know many of you know this already, but you can record yourself speaking into your smartphone and then email the file to us. The email address again is natschatpodcast at gmail.com. All Nationals radio highlights on Nats Chat are courtesy of 106.7 The Fan. For Mark Zuckerman, I'm Al Galdi. We'll talk to you next time on the Nats Chat Podcast. Hey, Mark and Al. My name is John Walker, Alexandria, Virginia. I'm responding to Tim Shovers' request for World Series memories that was on the podcast this morning, which I never miss. I think I've heard every one. I miss the podcast when the Nats don't play more than I think I miss the Nats not playing. Anyway, my memory is this. I was in New York City for Game 7 because my daughter, who is a singer-comedian who does nightclub stuff, had a long scheduled performance that night, and I had uh, told her and my wife that we were going to go to it unless the Yankees were in the World Series and there was a Game 7 in New York, in which case I'd be at Yankee Stadium instead. But since it was Houston, I felt obligated to go to my daughter's show. My wife, we were sitting right ringside. My wife kept checking her phone uh, between and during songs to see how the Nats were doing. Mercifully, the uh, performance ended uh, in the fifth inning with the Nats down 
we ran across the street to a bar where we knew they had a TV showing the game at the far end. We didn't want to miss anything by walking to our hotel. We set ourselves in front of the TV, got there in time to see uh, the seventh inning and, of course, how we I screamed louder than I screamed, I think, when Soto had his uh, famed single in the wild card game, even though I was inside in a bar as opposed to at Nats Park as I was for the Soto game. I had to apologize to the guy next to me for being so loud and boisterous, but like everybody else in the bar, he seemed to have no clue what was going on baseball or World Series-wise at all. We stayed there for the next couple hours to celebrate the glorious, glorious win, then walked back to our hotel, which conveniently enough was the hotel the Nats stay at when they're in New York to play either the Yankees or the Mets. I was rocking all my Nats gear, of course, and all the, uh, the help around the hotel took pains to tell me congratulations on my team's big win thinking I'm sure that I got the short straw and that I had to be in New York as opposed to Houston, even though they assumed I was uh, somehow involved directly with the Nats. Anyway, great memory, great podcast. Uh, I listen to it all the time. Please, please keep up the great work. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around, a watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, Movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during Movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com.